you can stay in the Senate as a convicted felon, apparently. Well, you, because the rest of them are unconvicted felons. <laughs> okay. Well, that's not a bad point. Maybe overstated a bit. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Well, maybe not. I, don't I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM in Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We are also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. And sometimes me alone. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us here today. That laughter you heard is, of course, our producer, Desi Doyen. Yes, How I are you think holding you're up? a swell fellow. Well, of course you are. I pay you to say that. Well done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> coming up, it, it's kind of remarkable, but there there is a sitting U.S. senator on trial in federal criminal court on public corruption and bribery allegations, and uh, given so much of what is going on now in our country, it's received remarkably little coverage in the mainstream media, and indeed here on the broadcast. We will try to correct that oversight at least a little bit here today shortly as we're joined by a former assistant U.S. attorney to explain what is at stake in the federal public corruption trial of New Jersey's uh, senior Democratic U.S. Senator Bob Menendez and what a conviction might mean for the uh, for the balance of the U.S. Senate. One of the reasons that it's been uh, difficult to cover that uh, trial, frankly, is due to the climate that just won't quit, frankly, both the political climate of the Trump administration But more directly over the past several uh, weeks, the actual climate, which is now acting out with a vengeance, it seems to me. Yeah, it seems like Mother Nature's a little mad at us. Yeah, it seems like it, Uh, certainly when it comes to hurricane season. Now, following Harvey and Irma, things seem to be getting worse, not better at the moment. Uh, A strengthening Hurricane Maria is uh, swirling toward the eastern Caribbean early on uh, on Monday. Forecasters are warning it's going to be, it is now, a major storm. By the time it passes through the already battered Leeward Islands uh, later in the day on Monday, on Sunday, Maria had grown into a hurricane. Forecasters said it was expected to become much stronger over the next 48 hours. 
Uh, and indeed it has. Today it strengthened first to a Category 3 hurricane. It is now a Category 4 hurricane as we go to air. Yeah, it's expected to strengthen to almost just shy of a Category 5 before it uh, makes landfall somewhere in the vicinity of the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico yeah, this as is well. The, the uh, very similar uh, path to what Hurricane Irma ran. Uh, it's going to head to Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic. Public and Haiti. Hurricane warnings are now issued for uh, all kinds of uh, Caribbean islands, including many of them that were hit very hard during Herm- Hurricane Irma just a, a week or so ago. Uh, and uh, the U.S. and British Virgin Islands are also now potentially in the path. The Hurricane Center said that uh, the conditions should begin affecting parts of the Leeward Islands by Monday night. With storm surge raising water levels by four to six feet near the storm's center. Storm is predicted to bring six to 12 inches of rain across the islands, with more in isolated areas. Puerto Rican Governor Ricardo Rossello uh, said that uh, they've prepared around 450 shelters with a capacity for nearly 68,000 people. That could be doubled in an emergency. Uh, Puerto Rico was actually somewhat lucky, despite having all of their uh, much of the island's power knocked out. They were actually somewhat lucky in that the uh, Hurricane Irma just barely skirted uh, that island. This one could be a more direct hit. Maria. Yeah, it does not look good at this moment that it does not look like they're going to escape at this time. But wait, that's not all. <laughs> Farther yeah. north, uh, we've been talking about Hurricane Jose, which has been around now for days, well, weeks, I think, at this point. It continues to head northward off the U.S. East Coast. Uh, it's causing dangerous surf and uh, riptides. But it, it, uh, the good news is, for the moment, Jose is not expected to make landfall. Uh, but uh, tropical storm watches are still posted along the coast from Delaware to Massachusetts, uh, Cape Cod. Jose is centered right now about 290 miles southeast of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. It's moving north pretty slowly, nine uh, nine miles per hour. That, so that's Jose. But wait, that's still not all. In the Pacific, Tropical Storm Norma is now threatening Mexico's Los Cabos Resort area. At the end of the Baja California Peninsula, that... Uh, seemed to ease a bit that storm norma as a forecaster said the storm's center was likely to remain offshore that is good news following two storm two storms that made landfall over the past week in mexico uh katya and max correct if i'm remembering them correctly yes you are and a week or so before that don't forget don't forget lydia Oh, that's right. Tropical uh, Storm Lydia, yeah, and, which was hitting at the same time as, as uh, Hurricane Harvey was decimating Houston. And then as Katya and Max moved into Mexico. Uh, and, of course, there was that horrible, uh, devastating earthquake that also hit southern Mexico uh, next week. Right now, Norma has winds of about 50 miles per hour. It's southwest of Cabo. Uh, the area that was hit uh, two weeks ago by Tropical Storm Lydia, which flooded streets and homes. It killed at least four people, by the way, Hurricane uh, Lydia did. We didn't get to report on that at the time because 
Up here in California, Lydia was actually a helpful thing to put out the raging wildfires that were uh, overtaking Los Angeles here. Correct. Now, remember, we're seeing so many of these storms all at once because the oceans are unusually warm right now. And warm water provides the fuel for these hurricanes. It provides more water vapor for the hurricanes to suck up and dump as rain. It provides more energy, more heat energy for the hurricanes as well. We had Dr. Michael Mann, the famous climate scientist on last week, and he explained that for every degree that you raise the temperature of the ocean, you actually increase the wind speed as well and the intensity. But wait, all of those storms I just mentioned? That's not all. Oh, there are more. I, and, and I don't know. We're going to have to figure out. This could be a, a record, the number of uh, storms appearing at once. Uh, Tropical Storm Lee. Uh, has now, good news, I guess, weakened into a tropical depression. It's far out in the Atlantic. And that's not all. Otis strengthened into a hurricane out in out in the Pacific. Right now, neither of those storms uh, threaten land. But yeah, I mean, what the hell, Des? Scientists had said, uh, yes, the warming increases the intensity of the uh, uh, of the storms. But they also said they didn't they didn't necessarily expect it to increase the number of storms. Right. It doesn't make. But a, in this case. It, but it does seem to be like we're having an extremely active Atlantic hurricane season, boy, if not a Pacific as well. But that is something that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration had predicted last uh, back six months ago. They said we expect that there will be a more than usual active hurricane season this year because of the high ocean temperatures. Well, they got that one right. Yes, they did. Uh, as to the political climate. See how I uh, segue over there? Nice the political, segue. thank you. Uh, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff was on ABC uh, ABC's This Week over the weekend. He was asked about what we were talking about quite a bit last week, if anything can or should be read into Trump's sudden willingness to work with Democrats on, well, a, a few things. A very few things, but a few things. Uh, one, that three-month extension of the debt ceiling and funding the government, which... Uh, it seems pretty easy for him to do, uh, frankly. It didn't cost him much of anything, despite claims that Republicans were upset about it. But then they passed it into law almost immediately and sent it to Trump's desk. So if they were upset about it, uh, they certainly didn't act like it. Um, and and two, the second thing, uh, which seems a much bigger thing, the claim made last week by Uh, Democratic leadership uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi in the House, that they had come to an agreement with Trump to pass a law to protect the Dreamers, the 800,000 kids of undocumented immigrants who had come here with their parents through no fault of their own to protect them from deportation in exchange for border security. Okay, but border security that did not include money for the wall with Mexico that Trump has been claiming he was going to build and and claiming that Mexico was going to pay for it uh, until he claimed that U.S. taxpayers were going to pay for it. In any event, Adam Schiff was asked about all of this. Here was his answer over the weekend on ABC's This Week. Uh, This is a president, look, who has no ideology. He's not conservative. He's not liberal. The only consistent theme seems to be he's pro-Trump. He's for his own personal interest. Now, uh, recall that Republicans at the time that uh, this announcement came out last week that uh, Demo- Trump was going to work with Democrats uh, to pass a, uh, a DACA 
uh, type legislation for uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals. Recall at the time Republicans had said that they were furious, furious about Trump's willingness to enact the DREAM Act, essentially, to save those uh, uh, folks from deportation. And that they were furious that he was not even insisting on funding the wall in order to do it, in order to make this deal with Democrats, claiming that, oh, we'll get to the wall later. Or uh, then Trump uh, took to Twitter, said, well, we're already working on the wall, essentially referring to improving the 700 miles or so of existing fencing that was put in place by uh, by George W. Bush and then, yes, by Barack Obama. Well, Republicans pretended that they were furious about all of this. And Coulter called for Trump's impeachment over all of this. Congressman Steve King of Iowa said uh, in his famous tweet now, if AP is correct in that breaking story about that uh, DACA deal with Trump, if AP is correct, Trump is, Trump base is blown up, destroyed, irreparable, Delusioned, disillusioned, beyond repair. I keep saying that <laughs> Freudian slip. Disillusioned, beyond repair. No promise is credible, said Steve King. I, of course, uh, spent some time last week arguing, you know what? They don't really mean it. They will, in fact, stick with Trump. Uh, they don't really care. They, too, don't have any particular ideology, his base. Uh, and that spreads to, I would argue, Republican, the Republican Party as a whole. They don't have any particular ideology um, unless it's something to uh, keep them in power, much as Adam Schiff was sort of arguing about Donald Trump there. It's certainly true about his his base. Uh, Trump has said that, you know, even if he shot someone in broad daylight on Fifth Avenue, it would have no impact whatsoever yeah. on their opinion or their support for exactly. him. And so far, he's been right. And I would argue the same thing is true, frankly, about so-called conservatives. It's one of the reasons I often put conservatives in quotes or call them so-called conservatives. Uh, because, well, look, here's one example. Um, where do I have this? Okay, so uh, from Andrew Taylor in AP observed over the weekend, uh, Republicans spooked world markets in their ardor to cut spending when Democratic uh, President Barack Obama was in the White House. Now, with Republican President Donald Trump pressing for politically popular tax cuts and billions more for the military, few in the GOP are complaining about the nation's soaring debt. Remember, they used to talk about how oh, the debt is how huge it's growing, the debt, the deficit. The Tea Partiers and other conservatives who seized control of the House in 2010 have morphed into Ronald Reagan-style supply-siders, says Taylor at AP, while the GOP's numerous Pentagon pals run roughshod over the few holdouts. Tax cuts in the works could add hundreds of billions of dollars to the debt. The bottom line, Taylor says, the $20 trillion national debt promises to spiral even higher with Republicans controlling both Congress and the White House. Now, frankly, I don't care uh, what happens uh, as far as the national debt goes. Uh, this just drives me nuts because you had Republicans acting for the past eight years as if they were infuriated by uh, by measures that uh, that uh, Barack Obama would take that might increase the deficit, even though, by the way, he lo uh, would increase the debt. He had himself lowered the deficit 
uh, over the eight years of his uh, of his presidency. But they were furious because, oh, the debt keeps increasing. We're not doing anything to increase to uh, decrease the debt. Uh, Capitol Hill uh, top Republicans, Taylor notes, like House Speaker Paul Ryan of Wisconsin and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky had promised that uh, their tax overhaul would not add to the deficit, that these rate cuts would be financed by closing loopholes and other steps elsewhere. Now, eh, not so much. Now they're okay. Whatever happens, happens. We'll we'll make it up through through economic growth. So it's going to increase the day. This is everything that the Tea Partiers were told to believe in during the Obama administration. And now the Republicans don't care about it. The Tea Party doesn't care about it. The conservatives, the so-called conservatives, they don't care. They will find a reason to be pretty much against pretty much everything that they claimed to be in favor of during the Obama administration, so long as it helps them stay in power. And the same thing is true on immigration. They're not going to bail on Donald Trump, as Steve King was was suggesting. Uh, Digby last week over at Salon uh, noted the uh, the HuffPost YouGov poll that said Republicans support Trump in a, a, a hypothetical disagreement with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell by a 46-point margin. Republicans are with Donald Trump, period. And among Trump supporters, that goes up 62 points. Uh, on She noted that on Fox and Friends uh, last week, late last week, Steve Ducey was saying that the wall, the wall wasn't really a wall. It's just symbolic. It's not really a wall. Suddenly, it's not it's really just, no, a wall. No, it's just symbolic. And uh, Jason Chaffetz said that the wall is already there. It just needs to be fixed a little bit, fix up, patch up those fences. I mean, they will find any. Fox, Greg Gutfeld, on Sunday, over the weekend, he claimed that uh, President Donald Trump's frequent strident calls for a physical wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, that was just a metaphor. Oh for bar, for border security. <laughs> Gutfield said uh, building a wall is, is just a catchier way of saying fix our borders. So they're cool with it. Uh, he said that uh, Trump negotiated with Democrats, quote, uh, to, to fund the wall, which is to say border security. The president's demand for a literal physical border is his his blunt way of raising the issue. He doesn't really mean it. And finally here, before we get to our break, if you need more evidence that, you know what, these guys say they don't mean it. They don't mean any of it. They don't believe any of they it. They don't. They don't believe any of it. I mean, the, the the Republicans in Congress will say anything to stay in power and their followers apparently are so gullible. They'll just go along with them, whatever they justify, particularly when it's Donald Trump saying it. They will go ahead. With, they will follow their leader. Which is why I'm arguing, by the way, that Donald Trump ought to make this deal with Democrats. Republicans were saying it's going to hurt him if he doesn't immediately fund the wall, if he allows uh, the dreamers to stay. Nah, they'll be fine. They'll get over it. More evidence of that. Remember Congressman Steve King? He had kicked off all of this with his explosive response to the news that uh, Trump and Democrats had struck a deal, saying that the base is blown up, it's destroyed, it's irreparable. They're People are disillusioned beyond repair. There's no promise of Trump is credible. 
Steve King, remember, he's the anti-immigrant warrior who once claimed that hundreds of thousands of immigrants were hauling drugs into the U.S. desert. He was trying to say that this is who these dreamers really were uh, when he said that. Remember this, uh, this quote? For everyone who's a valedictorian, there's another hundred out there that um, they weigh 130 pounds and they've got calves the size of cantaloupes because they're hauling 75 pounds of marijuana across the desert. <laughs> so, I've forgotten about that. Remember that? that? <laughs> Who knows what he means by uh, cantaloupes or uh, calves the size of cantaloupes? This guy hates immigrants, period, of any type, children of immigrants, legal, illegal, whatever. He's against it. Uh, saying that the the base is oh it's over it's over for Donald Trump. Well, that Steve King said over the weekend that guess what? He still stands by Donald Trump despite uh, the agreement with Democrats to protect uh, the recipients of the uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals. Here he is on uh, on CNN's uh, Michael Smirconish over the weekend. Will you leave him if this is the way it goes? No. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with President Trump um, for all the rest of his agenda, and I'm going to do everything I can okay. to help him keep his campaign promises. Yeah, That's my go. commitment. And by the way, it would be petulant to uh, walk away from a president because you disagree with him on a single issue. <laughs> so, so there you go. Even Stephen King didn't That was quick. That was only it. a couple days. That's all it took. <laughs> oh, man. So, no, Republicans have no real political ideology uh, anymore. If they ever did, I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, other than staying in power. And ta cutting taxes. And cutting taxes, no matter the cost to the deficit, the debt, they don't give a damn about that. Uh, and, of course, that is the same case with Donald Trump. Um, on the other hand, what do Democrats want? Well, there's a lot of questions about that as well. We will discuss that more on another day because, for now... We got a Democrat, a sitting U.S. senator on trial in federal court, and we should talk about that. And that's exactly what we will do next with a former assistant U.S. prosecutor. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Breaking rocks in the hot sun I fought the law and the law won I fought the law and the law won Yeah, 
the may uh, the law may win against a sitting u.s senator we'll uh hit that in just a moment here but as we went to the break uh to underscore my last point the uh, u.s senate just overwhelmingly backed sweeping a sweeping policy bill that will pump 700 billion dollars into the u.s military what's going to pay for that Nah, nothing. Nobody cares. We just, you know, giving uh, $700 billion uh, more for wars to our military. And that, by the way, is a bipartisan interest. Both Republicans and Democrats alike are willing to spend all that they want uh, on the uh, on our war efforts, on our unending war efforts around the country. All right. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh, amid all of this madness over the last several weeks, including the madness of the Trump administration on a daily basis, as as well as one after another devastating hurricane uh, in, in recent weeks, a U.S. senator is actually on trial for several felony corruption counts. And with everything else going on, it's receiving startlingly little attention in the mainstream corporate media and even here on the broadcast. Uh, we will set aside why that may be for the moment. I'm certain Republicans would charge that it's because the U.S. senator in question is a Democrat. While Democrats might suggest that the country and the planet has uh, far greater fish to fry at the moment. Nonetheless, as I say, a sitting U.S. senator is on federal trial for corruption, and that is no small matter. I'm not sure when the last time is that that even happened. I, I can't recall if Alaska Senator Ted Stevens was on trial while he was serving uh, at the time or not, or if he had left the Senate by then. In any event, the threat to Democrats, if New Jersey senior uh, U.S. Senator Bob Menendez is found guilty of the charges that he is standing trial for, that threat to Democrats in the Senate, at least, can't really be understated. Uh, a point that should be clear to anybody following politics of late in the U.S. Senate, particularly the recent razor thin margin that prevented Republicans various repeal and replace uh, plans from being adopted. Nonetheless, as Vox.com explained last week, the trial is now underway and federal prosecutors are alleging that Menendez accepted expensive gifts from a wealthy supporter and friend guy by the name of Dr. Solomon uh, Melgin. Actually, I'm not sure if it's Melgin or Melgin. In any case, uh, he accepted those gifts in exchange for intervening on behalf of the doctor's business interests with government officials and trying to get visas for the doctor's girlfriends. Uh, Menendez asserts that he has done nothing wrong. He says he was merely providing constituent services for his uh, benefactor here, just like he would provide to any other constituent seeking his help. The bar, however, for courts to find that public corruption has been uh, raised, um, that bar has been raised quite a bit in recent years, particularly following the corruption trial of then-Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell for similarly taking all kinds of gifts from a wealthy donor. While McDonnell, uh, a Republican, was eventually found guilty in that case. The charges were then tossed later on by the U.S. Supreme Court after they determined in their wisdom that while McDonald's benefactor may have given him all sorts of things like Rolex watches and shopping sprees for his wife and tens of thousands of dollars in other gifts, including use of his sports car and vacation home, etc., McDonald did not return anything 
to that guy, to that benefactor, in the form of official government favors in exchange for the gifts. Thus, there was no corrupt intent by the governor, no explicit quid pro quo. Uh, You give me this, I will give you that in exchange. That was not done explicitly, if I understand why why the Supreme Court threw out those charges, and thus McDonald didn't do anything wrong. Well... It seems kind of remarkable, but that's where we are when it comes to corruption trials of public officials at this point. So will prosecutors be able to work around those uh, recent new, very much narrowed limitations put onto public corruption charges by the U.S. Supreme Court? Will they have any better luck with Senator Bob Menendez? And if so, will they do so in time for uh, the outgoing New Jersey governor, Republican Chris Christie, to be able to appoint to appoint a Republican replacement for Menendez if Menendez is forced to uh, leave office. Governor Christie leaves office himself on January 16 of next year. Here to help us understand uh, all of these questions and why this uh, senator is on trial at all. Uh, and much more, no doubt, is Randall Eliason. He is a law professor, writer, and commentator on corporate and white-collar crime. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the public corruption government fraud section of that office. His writings on federal crime and criminal law have appeared in journals, scholarly journals, and newspapers like the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. Professor Eliason currently teaches white-collar criminal law at George Washington University Law School in D.C. He's a faculty member of the National Institute of Trial Advocacy. He also posts on white-collar crime and federal criminal law at his Sidebars blog, which you can read at sidebarsblog.com. Randall Eliason, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, uh, first, can we give? Uh, can you give us some some idea of the uh, a general idea of the charges that Menendez, again, a sitting U.S. senator, the charges that he is up against since this trial really has received remarkably uh, little public coverage? It seems to me. Sure, um, and you're correct. Uh, the last time a U.S. senator was on trial was Ted Stevens. That was back in 2008. So it's been nearly a decade. Yeah. Uh, since a U.S. senator has gone to trial, mm-hmm. so it's you know pretty pretty big event. Um, yeah, seems to me pretty unusual. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the it's, the charge against Menendez is essentially a bribery case. He's got a co-defendant in the case, as you mentioned, Dr. Melgan. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the allegation is that over a period of years, starting shortly after Menendez was first elected to the Senate in 2006 that Dr. Melgan sort of had him on retainer uh, in exchange for a series of gifts over the years. Um, uh, include w- the, the main ones mm-hmm. are uh, a series of trips on his private jet, Dr. Melgan's private jet. He took uh, the senator back and forth to the Dominican Republic more than a dozen times uh, on his private jet. A while, and then once he got there, he ha- allowed him to stay at his luxury villa that he owns down there at this very high-end resort. Uh, all of that uh, was free. Um, one time when his uh, own private jet was in the shop, he, he paid to have another uh, private jet go and pick up Senator Menendez. And one time when he couldn't get him a private jet, he bought him a first-class ticket. So he was kind of running this little airline service for mm-hmm. the senator to take him back and forth to this luxury villa. Um, that's, that's one of the main areas. The mm-hmm. other is a series of political contributions to things, uh, super PACs, 
various campaign funds, legal defense fund, uh, and those totaled more than $700,000. So it's, it's a lot of money involved, mm-hmm. um, in, in addition to the private jets and the luxury vacations and things like that. Um, and in exchange, the senator is supposed to have done primarily three things over the years for Dr. Melgan. One was the uh, visas for three different girlfriends that you mentioned. He helped obtain those so they could travel to the U.S., uh, girlfriends of Dr. Melgan's. Um, the second area was that uh, Dr. Melgan was involved in a Medicare billing dispute with, uh, he has a great big uh, medical practice in Florida. And by the way, I'll correct one, one thing you said during your intro. Yeah. Um, he's not actually a constituent of Senator Menendez, because Senator oh. Menendez is from New Jersey, ah. and uh, Dr. Melgan lives in Florida. Okay. So, <laughs> All right. so uh, that's actually one thing that makes, I think, the defense a little more difficult, because as you said, normally a senator would say, hey, I'm just helping out one of my constituents right. by doing these different things. He can't say that here. Ah. Um, although he's saying something similar, he's saying, well, I'm just helping out my good friend. You know. Uh, and we'll get to that more in a minute. Sure. Um, but the, uh, so the, th- the things that he's so there's the visas that he's supposed to have done. The second thing was Medicare was alleging that Dr. Milligan had overbilled Medicare by about $9 million mm. uh, uh, for this eye medication that he used in his practice as an ophthalmologist mm-hmm. that costs $2,000 per dose. And you're only supposed to use one vial per patient per eye. And apparently Dr. Milligan was using one vial for two or three patients at a time but then billing Medicare as if he had bought a separate vial for each patient. Ah. So um, dramatically overbilling Medicare over a period of years, and he actually went to, was charged in a whole separate case down in Florida with Medicare fraud and was convicted of that uh, just this past April. So, But while that dispute was going on, uh, Senator Menendez was sort of lobbying on his behalf, going to meet with people at Health and Human Services and Medicare to try and convince them that Melgan didn't do anything wrong or that the regulations were confusing, that they should, you know, drop this case. Hmm. Um, And then the third area was Dr. Melgan owned a contract that he he just purchased that uh, was to provide uh, port screening services in the Dominican Republic, like x-ray and cargo containers and Uh things like that worth many millions of dollars potentially, but had never been carried out by the Dominican government, and it was held, you know, boxed up in these disputes. And so uh, the senator was allegedly trying to pressure the State Department to pressure the Dominican government to go forward on a contract so that Dr. Melgan could make that money. So that's the allegation. It's basically in exchange for these luxury trips and jet trips and and Uh pretty large political donations over the years that Senator Menendez was working on these various things uh, on Dr. Melgan's behalf. And and what the government has to prove is that there was a corrupt link between the two, that it was because of the gifts that the senator was doing this. Yeah, I want to ask about that, because as you describe it, Randall, uh, those charges against him, well, they certainly sound corrupt, sounds like they've got him dead to rights on this. But then I go back to the um, to the Bob McDonald case in Virginia, the the uh, Virginia governor there, and also you had this similarly long list of of, of gifts that came from this uh, wealthy donor. Uh, you had also uh, you know reports that he was uh, trying to help this donor get meetings for this or that. There was some uh, the, the product that the donor wanted to sell, and he wanted to get sort of uh, official approval for this product. It sounded like. 
McDonald did all of those things. Uh, yeah, McDonald did all of those things. It sounded like he was dead to rights, and in fact, he was convicted. So, what makes this case now any different from McDonald in particular? Yep. Um, so, there's been a lot of talk about you know whether McDonald would affect this this case, and you know his, Senator Menendez's attorneys have certainly been pushing that argument very hard. Um, I personally think that they're different. Um, so McDonnell okay. the, and the McDonald's not actually going to be a problem for the Menendez prosecutors. So the thing about McDonnell was the Supreme Court decided that case, and like you said, you know, he was convicted. Mm-hmm. Fourth Circuit unanimously affirmed. The Supreme Court unanimously reverses. Um, and it's, it's a very... Uh, it, it's all dependent on this definition of this statutory term, official act. Right, and they and that's a very kind of uh, you know nerdy lawyerly analysis of right. what this definition means, right? Um, which is my crit- criticism of that case, but that's a whole other topic of discussion. But um, they said basically what McDonald did in exchange for the gifts was not significant enough to qualify as an official act. So the funny thing about McDonald is actually. You could end up saying um, there was actually a link. He was doing this because of the gifts. There was mm-hmm. a quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. But despite that, the things that he did were not significant enough to qualify as official acts to justify a bribery case. So the court basically said you've got to make uh, make some kind of government decision, exercise government power, hand out some kind of government benefit, decide a dispute. You know, and all McDonald was doing was he set up some meetings for this guy. He introduced him to other people, but then he just kind of stepped back. He never tried to step in and put his thumb on the scale and, and make the decision that would give some benefit to to his uh, the person that was bribing him. Um, so he those, he was bribed, but not uh, <laughs> but but <laughs> what he did in return was not bribey enough. He didn't uh, g- yeah. do, do enough for him in return for these gifts. So the gifts exactly. are okay. Yeah. So I guess so. I guess we can't really say he was bribed, according to the Supreme Court, because what their definition would be the the quo. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at the quid pro quo, right? The thing that McDonald did in exchange was not significant enough to qualify under the federal bribery statute. Um, so, you know, technically, Menendez could say, uh, even, you know, or any, any bribery defendant could say, mm-hmm. even, I did this because of these gifts, but the things I did were not substantial enough to qualify as bribery. Because what the McDonald court's concern was, was that, look, politicians do favors for their constituents all the time. They, were, these, they call them like routine political courtesies, you mm-hmm. know, arranging meetings, making phone calls. That can't be the subject of a bribery prosecution. It needs to be something more substantial, some bigger exercise of government power to, to justify a bribery charge. Um, but in the yeah. case of a U.S. senator, I mean, uh, okay, so you can, I guess you can make the argument that as governor, there are certain things that uh, the executive uh, could or couldn't do, you know, with a stroke of his pen to help out uh, a constituent or, or a friend or whatever. In the case of a U.S. senator, I mean, what sort of act? Uh, they don't have a lot of power on their own. They can't, you know, sign a bill. They can't uh, do an act. What, what sort of act would rise to this new level of, uh, you know, corrupt yep. enough to pass well, that bar? Um, there could be things, uh, 
on, on the legislative side, like you know, introducing legislation uh-huh. you know, or, or trying to to uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, back when they used to do earmarks, you know, trying to get government contracts or benefits right. or awarded to particular individuals, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you had a, a, a someone bribing a member of Congress, and in exchange they introduced a bill to try to grant some big tax break to that mm. industry or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, that kind of exchange would qualify. It doesn't have to be successful mm-hmm. if they, if they, as long as they're making the effort, right, to, to do something in, ex- in exchange. In the Menendez case, what we have is the legislator lobbying the executive branch. And the reason why I don't think McDonald is a problem is that um, what Menendez is alleged to have done was far more substantial than what Bob McDonald did. So McDonald made a couple of phone calls, arranged some meetings, but he didn't go to the meetings mm-hmm. or push for a particular result himself. He just made some introductions and kind of stepped back. Um, but Menendez is alleged to have personally gone to these executive branch officials, including the sec- he took it all the way up to the Secretary of Health and Human Services herself, mm-hmm. um, you know, to push uh, lobby on Milligan's behalf, push for certain results, uh, actively doing it himself. And one thing the McDonald opinion says is it can be an official act either if it's something you can do yourself or if you're trying to persuade another public official to do an official act. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so what he was basically doing is these, lobbying these executive branch officials who could decide to award the contract or you know, resolve the eye medication dispute. He's trying to pressure them to act in a certain way, and under the McDonald opinion, that's enough. So I don't think in the end... This case is going to come down to the definition of official act. I don't think it's going to be a McDonald issue. It's going to come down to can the government actually establish that the reason Menendez did this was not simply because they were longtime friends, but in fact because of all the gifts that he was getting in exchange. That he had uh, a corrupt intent, which sort of exactly. brings me to another uh, point here. Um, now, Menendez, uh, uh, Melgan, Dr. Melgan, is, is so far, he's not expected to be a witness here, correct, in this trial? He's not yet cooperating with federal prosecutors, to my knowledge? Yeah, no, definitely not a witness for the government. Yeah, uh-huh. remains to be seen whether he'll testify, you know, in his own defense. But okay, so without yeah. without that, without his testimony to that end, and without a uh, a, a letter or a, a you know a tape recording of of one or both of them saying I'm going to give you this and you will give me that, it seems like uh, the way the Supreme Court has de- uh, defined uh, corruption and defined quid pro quo, it seems almost impossible uh, to some extent to prove corrupt intent under what seems like the new standards, if I understand it. Uh, yeah. d- am I wrong about that, that they have to have an explicit, hey, give me this, I will do this in return for you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it does not have to be explicit. So the, the court has been pretty clear over the years that bribery... Um, can be established by circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can end up inferring the corrupt agreement based on the actions of the parties and things that they did. And that's common sense, right? Because we know that people aren't often clumsy enough to put these things explicitly in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this does get done by sort of nods and winks and understandings. You don't expect them to have a written contract for their corrupt agreement. Right. So it, it but as you, as you said, when you don't have one side testifying, like in McDonald, they had the person paying the bribes testifying for the government. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the best way to prove 
the corrupt agreement, have one of the parties to the agreement testifying. When mm-hmm. you don't have that, then the government is left with doing what it's trying to do here, which is basically trying to prove that corrupt intent by circumstantial evidence, which is to, uh, things like the nature of the gifts, the timing of the gifts, just the implausibility of the claim that this is due to anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when you talk about you know, a claim that it was just because we're friends, um, you know, it's one thing if Dr. Melgan's flying down to the Dominican Republic on his jet and he lets the senator tag along. You know, mm-hmm. it's quite another thing to sort of send the jet for him mm-hmm. when you're not even traveling yourself, or to pay to send someone else's jet when your jet can't, uh, you know, is is in the shop. Uh, that sort of thing. Those those start to sound uh, not like just friendship, like it's something more. Right? I, I, and, I, I yep. agree, but didn't Citizens United say very clearly that you have to, uh, and incredibly, you know, narrowly uh, defining that public corruption, we actually have to be able to see and to know that this was done in exchange for that? Yes, but you do have to prove the quid pro quo, and that, um, but you don't have to... Uh, Citizens United didn't set some kind of new evidence mm-hmm. standard where you've got to show, you know, the agreements in writing or things like that. I mean, you've always had to prove a quid pro quo beyond a reasonable doubt in a bribery case. Right. Um, and the court in Citizens United said basically you can't infer that just from the fact that someone made a, you know, a political contribution to a to a PAC. Right. Um, but, so take a hypothetical, if you had a political contribution to a PAC accompanied by a letter where the congressman said, you know, hey, thanks for the PAC contribution. As we discussed, in exchange, I'll introduce that bill to give your company this huge tax break, and I'll be doing that next week. Right. That's still a bribe. Sure. I mean, so, I mean, it's not that political contributions by their nature can't be. It's just that um, you've got to prove the quid pro quo. But that that can still be proven by things like... You know the timing of the gift. Right. Uh, other, you know, and, and in Menendez, there's evidence like that. Uh, that you know, he was asking for contributions to this one legal defense fund, and Melgan was kind of resisting until Menendez made the appointment to go talk to people at Health and Human Services, uh. and then Melgan made the donation the same day. So it's it's uh, circumstantial evidence yep, exactly. uh, as opposed to direct uh, testimony or direct evidence, but it it still works. Circumstantial yep. evidence still works. Uh, Menendez also failed to disclose a lot of these gifts uh, that he's. Uh, arguing are not actual signs of corruption. So uh, a couple of uh, quick questions here uh, before we go. Randall Eliasson, uh, A, can he, can Menendez be convicted of, of simply failing to report the things that he was supposed to? And that certainly seems a more cut and dry fact. He's supposed mm-hmm. to declare disclose this. He didn't. And uh, B, I guess, uh, if so, if he can be found guilty of that, does that bode ominously for uh, those in the uh, Team Trump investigation from, you know, Michael Flynn to Jared Kushner, et cetera, who also just simply failed to report facts as required by law on these various documents, no matter how one feels politically about the investigation behind Menendez or the Trump investigation? Right. Um, so it's a very important point when we're talking about circumstantial evidence and how you prove corrupt intent. The thing you just mentioned is, is critical. So, as you said... Menendez failed to report these gifts and the, the jet trips and mm-hmm. the uh, stays at the luxury villa on his Ethics and Government Act reports, where he was required to report gifts uh, 
every year. Um, and he didn't report any of them until the press started sniffing around in about 2012 and asking questions. And then he reported two of them and gave uh, Melgan a check to, to pay for them. And at the time, he said that was all there was. So, but in fact, there were more than dozens. So what that helps the government establish is that corrupt intent, because the argument is, well, if it was all innocent and all our friendship, why didn't you report it the way you were supposed to? Mm-hmm. And the argument is the reason you don't is because you know you're doing something wrong, right? You're covering it up, and mm-hmm. that helps prove corrupt intent. Uh-huh. So there is one charge in the indictment. It's way at the end, a statute called false statements, um, that basically charges Menendez with failing to report these gifts as required, so making false statements to the government by filing these forms and failing to disclose those gifts. So that is a separate charge that he can be convicted for, but it's much more important than that. It, 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 it also provides evidence of the entire bribery case, yeah. because the fact that he failed to disclose it allows the government to go in and say, why you do that, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah. It, 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 if it's all just out of friendship and it's perfectly innocent, why do you cover it up, right? Yep. And his, again, defense is prob- will likely be, you know, it was a mistake, you well. know, forgot about them or my staff screwed it up or something like that and it all comes back to intent again um and so again with that statute uh you've got to show that it was a deliberate lie right if it Mm -hmm. was a mistake or carelessness or whatever that's not a crime so like you said with some of the trump people facing possibly similar charges for failing to disclose like contacts with russians on their security clearance forms and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing it all comes down to can the government prove it was intentional versus the common defense, which is it was an oversight or the form was confusing or I didn't know this particular type of meeting had to be disclosed. or You know, it's all, as with the bribery charges, it all comes down to whether, whether the government can prove intent and gotcha. deliberate actions. And that's what makes these white-collar cases so challenging because we're not trying to prove, you know, who shot John, you know, with eyewitnesses and mm-hmm. things. We're trying to prove what was going on in someone's head. Right. And frequently that's that's pretty difficult, so that's the burden that the government faces in all these cases. Last question here for you, Randall. Uh, this this whole thing, uh, these charges against Menendez, you, you referenced this a little bit, uh, it sort of started uh, based on, we didn't use this word at the time, but fake news from, uh, from Tucker Carlson's Daily Caller years ago, back in uh, 2012, I think, uh, before Menendez's uh, re-election bid back then in 2012. Uh, concerning a phony claim, a claim that uh, turns out to have no evidence to support it, really, that Menendez had been using underage prostitutes in the Dominican Republic, I guess with his friend, the doctor. Uh, it turned out to be a totally phony story. Uh, the, the, these uh, women who stepped forward to make these claims retracted them. I believe it was the story was eventually retracted by the Daily Caller itself, though I think the author of that fake story is now uh, Breitbart's White House correspondent. But that's a separate story. Uh, his problems, Menendez's problems, came about when the federal prosecutor started to look into that fake story. Uh, to find out if it was true, and instead they found all of this other stuff. So I guess that my question here, does, doesn't that suggest that, oh, it's pretty easy to find wrongdoing when you bother to look, uh, and, and that that could be very bad for Donald Trump, uh, you know, who has the Robert Mueller's Justice League of superhero prosecutors here uh, looking into his uh, combing, you know, investigating his, his entire life. Uh it seems like it's pretty easy to find 
something that can be regarded as corruption if you bother to look. Am I wrong? Well, I'm not sure if we can generalize quite that broadly. I mean, if Menendez had not been doing anything else wrong, then mm -hmm. the government would have looked into these allegations, found nothing to them, and that would have been the end of it, right? I don't think it's the norm. I mean, it's not that unusual for the government to start investigating one thing mm -hmm. and for other things to turn up. Um, but I don't think that means that they can just find something in every case if they look hard enough. I mean, the fact is, this conduct was there yeah. by Senator Menendez and Melgan with all the jet trips and the official actions that were taking place in response. Um, and, you know, the government didn't make that up. It, right. it came to light when they started looking at these other claims. So I don't know um, if we can draw uh, general conclusions. It's all very fact-specific, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. not the fact that the government's looking at you. It's sort of what kind of underlying conduct is there to be discovered and if it, you know it's it's it, just it, yeah. it's just disturbing because there are so many charges that uh you know and allegations that the uh the prosecutors are making here that apparently were just sitting there the whole time uh once they bothered to look at something that was completely made up story uh you know it, it, uh -huh. it, tucker carlson those guys seems like they would have found some of these other things but no they they made up this other story apparently instead uh, it's it's very strange and it's very interesting to me as a as a layman looking at how these cases sort of come about out of nowhere and in this case, out of a completely phony made up fake news story uh, five years ago. Yeah, I mean I'm, I I don't know enough personally about the underlying allegations. I mean there was some discussion in some early pleadings about you know the the claim that the. Uh, by the defense that this investigation was all based on sort of fake news, like you said, and the prosecutors responding by saying basically, you know, there was enough there that we had to look at it. It wasn't completely mm -hmm. uh, ridiculous, mm -hmm. and and that's then what led to these other discoveries. So, um, you know, again, I think if the underlying the, the, there's some kernel of underlying misconduct there, and if it was not of the nature of the Tucker Carlson allegations, at least there was enough of a link or a relation there hmm. that once the government started poking around, it became pretty clear that there was something apparently improper going on, even it wasn't precisely of the nature of the original allegations. It's going to be very interesting to watch how this plays out and to watch if we can, uh, you know, get a real uh, public corruption uh, conviction in this day and age. Uh, and uh, the uh, judge currently thinks it's going to take anywhere from six to eight weeks on this trial. I know that uh, the Medendez uh, uh, attorneys are trying to slow walk this as much as possible. Democrats would very much like them to slow walk it as long as possible. Uh, but uh, you, your article, uh, Randall Eliason, at your sidebarsblog.com, uh, headlined, What to Watch for at the Bob Menendez Trial is a very helpful, very helpful primer in all of this. And I hope you don't mind if we uh, call you in the weeks ahead as, uh, as this trial moves forward. Nope. Happy to talk to you anytime. Thank you very much. Randall right, Eliason. Uh, follow him on the Twitters at R.D. Eliason. He, of course, is a professor at George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. Okay, quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As usual, I'm running late, Desi Doyen. <laughs> so uh, what I want to do, I wanted to play more of this. We won't have time. Let's just play a short piece. This is uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster on one of the Sunday shows. I think this was ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos asking about Trump, uh, his, his promise to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. The president was very clear in that statement. He said the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. Of course, that withdrawal can't take place until 2020. So you're saying if you can renegotiate better terms before 2020, the U.S. will not withdraw? I would just go back to what the president said. And, and, uh, and of course, he's open to any discussions that will help us improve the environment that will help us ensure energy security and will advance in uh, our prosperity. So Stephanopoulos there asked him like three times, are you saying that he would be willing to come back in to the Paris Agreement? Uh, And he seemed to indicate, McMaster seemed to indicate that, yes, uh, Trump would be open to that. But Des, what the hell is he talking about? Something that would improve a better deal? It's it's incoherent is what it is because the UN climate agreement is voluntary and non-binding and the United States sets its own terms. You cannot get better terms than setting your own terms. <laughs> exactly. This is nonsensical. That's uh, that's essentially what we're talking about here. This is word salad meaningless. It it is and yet here it was on the on the Sunday show you had Stephanopoulos asking him three times. So he he will get back in if he gets an improved deal, right? But nobody knows what he did not ask him. What does Donald Trump object to in the Paris Agreement? What specific thing? And I wish some reporter out there would ask Donald Trump, Mr. President, what could be changed about the Paris Agreement that you would then support? Why is it such a bad deal? Specifically, because they throw out the Trump administration and Trump himself throw out a lot of disinformation and misinformation. It's not even clear to me whether they actually understand what is in the agreement. So it would be great to hear him specifically detail what it is that he needs to hear in order in this this supposed ridiculous renegotiation, what he would expect Uh, to get to to remain party to it. Uh, of course they don't know what's in it. Otherwise, how could you call it a bad agreement? It's a great agreement. I wish every agreement that I uh, signed, every contract that I signed, was up to me on a voluntary basis. And you set your own terms. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Randall Eliason of George Washington University and the sidebarsblog.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, please stop by bradblog.com. You can download it there for free, along with all of the shows that we have ever done. Uh, while you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day right here. Uh, you can drop me email as well. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Please 
Follow us and share us far and wide. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 